All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, Richie Ote? It's awesome. How it's you awesome. <laughs> White Wade holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters, and Mary Goulet uh, is out in the world doing some volunteer stuff, and uh, we love you for that. Mary, we will see you here next week. Here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that generate more than $10 million annually. And we get to the bottom of uh, exactly what it took for them to start and scale and in some cases exit that business. And uh, it's been a heck of a ride so far, huh, Richie? It has, especially (laughs) when you pair it up with um, doing reinvention radio and being in the middle of a series of five weeks of trying to talk about homelessness and help people out with that whole thing. And then the very next hour, we're talking to people that are doing 10 million and up. And it's just like it's it's a trip on the brain. It is. Yeah. And actually, you and I were just talking about that on the break. Uh, And if you guys are are not familiar with our other show, we, we do a show called Reinvention Radio. And we are smack dab in the middle of our Reinventing Homelessness series and uh, just had uh, a gentleman on who shared his story of being on the streets. I mean, having a girlfriend and a new baby and the whole nine and ending up on the streets uh, for seven months and eating out of dumpsters and and picking himself up and uh, just reinventing his life. And it's just and then we come into Beyond Eight Figures and it's just it, like you said, man, it is just such a trip on the brain. So, yeah, I'm super excited, though, for this guest. As Me you know, too. I'm already a fan. But but yeah. I think he's going to have an interesting view on this, too. Yeah. Just because the first hotel he started with. Yeah. And uh, and so we do have Chip Conley on today with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. And actually, interestingly enough, we did have Chip on. Uh, reinvention radio uh, as well uh, a few months back so make sure that you do check out that episode because uh, we covered a lot of different ground than we'll cover here today uh, but i wanted to actually just bring chip on right now and uh and let, let's talk to chip Conley. how you doing brother hey great to be with you thank you yeah man really really great to, to have you on and uh as i said you joined us on reinvention radio and that was an awesome conversation to learn more about your personal reinvention and the reinvention of your businesses and so on uh, as you've gone through your career and here on Beyond Eight Figures, uh, we do get to more uh, of the bottom of sort of the, the nuts and bolts of, of building and, and scaling and uh, potentially exiting from a business. So uh, let's just start right out of the gate with uh, with the core question of how do you qualify to be a guest on Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit from a business uh, for more than $10 million, or do you currently run a business that generates more than $10 million, uh, million annually or both? I guess both. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the second one, the second one, I've sort of stepped away from uh, a role helping to run it, and mm-hmm. I'm now just advising it. But mm-hmm. the the first one, I yes, I, I I've sold I sold my company Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which was just the management company and brand. But I also sold many many hotels that I built or renovated or created for, I guess, more than eight figures and. Yeah. Um, you know, some of them more than nine figures. And, um, and then for the last five and a half years, I've been uh, strapped to the rocket ship called Airbnb with the three founders, helping support them to grow that company from a, a little tech startup to a global hospitality brand. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously go ahead, Richard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how quick you want to get into it, but we, we obviously talk on this show that for people who've listened in the past about starting 
growing, scaling, yeah. and exiting, right? Yeah. So, but I'm fascinated. Again, you probably heard a little bit at the beginning there. We're doing this thing mm-hmm. on homelessness, and here's yeah. Chip, and he wants to start this boutique hotel. Uh, and, and you know, I, I imagine your vision was you're going to get a few of these, and who knows how much you thought you were going to exit for, but not everybody knows where the tenderloin is and what the tenderloin's <laughs> like. I do. And not everybody knows what the... That would be a neighborhood in San Francisco, <laughs> folks, just for those who don't know. And, yes. uh, and not everybody's been to the Phoenix Hotel, like, back in the day. Like, mm-hmm. this, this tenderloin is the place where, you know, in the movies where the, the rich financial guys are driving in the lemo and, and looking for their crack dealer, you know? <laughs> like, what, what made you start there? From the it's, starting it's, perspective, you know, it, it, you know, it, the truth is, it hasn't changed much. Um, <laughs> 30, Thirty-two years later, um, yeah. so uh, you know, San Francisco is definitely gentrified, but uh, the, you know, the Tenderloin, not so much. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're 26 years old and you're starting your first boutique hotel uh, and, and a boutique hotel brand, and we created 52 of those over 24 years, but the first one. I didn't have much money. I mean, I'm not from a wealthy family. I needed to go out and raise money from people at age 26, and I was—I had no hotel background. So, if you uh, imagine this: 26-year-old, no hotel experience. I did have a real estate background, but no hotel experience. He's going to go buy a no-tell motel, meaning a pay-by-the-hour mm-hmm. motel in the Tenderloin. That's the one that has. By the, that's the one with the box uh, by the side of the bed that you drop the quarters in and it shakes. That, that <laughs> it kind of shakes, yes, yeah, so sweet. Magic, mag, magic fingers, exactly. Sweet. Exactly, a little vibrating thing. Um, so uh, I, I had to raise the money, and so I all I could afford was a bankrupt uh, pay by the hour motel in the Tenderloin. But I think the fact it succeeded, we'll come back. I'm sure about how they raised that money, but it, the fact it succeeded against all odds. Um, really gave people uh, the opportunity to say, this guy must know something. Like, mm-hmm. How the heck did that happen? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's a great point. So let, let's actually go to that. So you're, so you're 26, you're in, the whole, you're in the real estate world at this point. Are you a commercial broker? How are you dipping your toes in the water just as far as real estate goes? Yeah, I, I graduated from uh, Stanford undergrad and then Stanford Business School straight through. Mm-hmm. And uh, did not, had started. I got my real estate license at age 19. Mm-hmm. Started working in Silicon Valley for my uncle's company, which is a commercial real estate uh, brokerage and development company. Worked for Morgan Stanley in their real estate division in New York. Worked, went to work for a real estate developer in San Francisco. So I was extremely focused on yeah. commercial real estate. But I had so so hotels are a form of real estate. But boutique hotels had just gotten off the ground in the mid-1980s where, as, a, as a concept. So boutique hotels being small, design-oriented hotels that sort of reflect their neighborhood or their city and usually had sort of a cool, hip restaurant or bar. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took my real estate background, um, understanding how you buy things, renovate them affordably, and then I used that as the way to sort of get started. But I didn't ha- know a thing about um, how to operate or market a hotel. So, so the pedigree is there. I mean, on paper, you, you're, you're the golden boy. I mean, really. I mean, it's like, you, you know, you've obviously got the, the right degrees from the right places. You're working at the right companies. You've got access to people with information, knowledge, uh, you know, and capital, right? So 
you're sitting here going, maybe. Uh, and did Ian Schrager ex- exist at this point? And this is this is pre Schrager, right? <laughs> uh, it's funny. It was just he had just he and Bill Kempton were the two first, and I was like the third. And they they had just started their things. Uh, Ian in New York, Bill in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was a very new concept. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I, there's no doubt uh, people invest in you in your early days, rarely because of the business plan. It's usually because of who you are. And that mm-hmm. may be because they know you and are being nice to you. Yeah. Or maybe because they know you and they really believe in you and they want to feel that sense of pride of ownership of like having invested in someone who they know might be successful mm-hmm. someday. And in my case, I think it was a combination of both. Some people did. My, my dad helped me raise the money. I'm not from a wealthy family. But my dad had friends he knew I'd gone to college and business school at Stanford, so I had people sure. that I, I could hit up, but you know who were you know had more money than I did. And yeah, and that alumni network I'm sure is very strong. I know in some of the Ivy League schools they actually have boards where you can post and that sort of thing. I would venture to guess in some of the Pac-10 type yeah. schools they have those as well. But why why boutique? I mean, like real estate, right? So why boutique hotels? Well, what I what I was curious about is I was 25, 26 years old, and I had a series of people coming through visiting San Francisco, and they all slept on my damn couch. (laughs) (laughs) My focus group of, you know, one at a time, everybody would come to San Francisco, and instead of having them stay, instead of staying in a hotel, they'd stay at my place. So I started asking people, why why don't you stay at a hotel? I'm I'm not trying to be inhospitable, but like, and what I kept hearing was hotels in San Francisco are boring and expensive. And so I was like, okay, well, how about if we created a hotel that was, you know, fun, and inexpensive, and that's really exactly what the Phoenix was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and but you know, I also I, I bought it for eight hundred thousand dollars. I renovated it for two hundred thousand dollars, which is like it's a forty-four room hotel on an acre of land. Um, and then I had a hundred thousand dollars left of working capital to make you know. So I had I, my total investment was one point one million dollars. I promise you today, one point one million dollars will buy you a studio in the Tenderloin. Yeah. Yeah, with the, with the bathroom down the hall. That's unreal. <laughs> so it was on. Did you say it was on an acre of land? It was on an acre of land, but that's it was also unreal. on a land lease. So I didn't even own the land. Oh, it was, it was on a land lease to so boot. Forty exactly a forty-year land lease. So wow. I mean, this was this was not you know this was not your sort of classic real estate deal where people mm-hmm. say yeah that's a great real estate deal. No, it's a forty-year land lease. So that's why I could buy it so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so you said there were how many keys? There were 40, 40 rooms. Forty-four. 44 keys. So at that point, I mean, you're basically paying, was a 20 grand a key? Something like that? Right, yeah, yeah, exactly, which is cheapo. You know, which, which, <laughs> which is unbelievably cheap. Yeah. Like no, you said, so uh, so how far, how did you leverage this thing? So did you do did traditional bank? Did you have to go all cash? What did you have no, to do? No bank, no bank would touch this thing. So, um, so what we did is uh, <clears throat> for the 1.1 million we raised, um, we raised it in two ways. One was you could either be on the equity side or you could be on the debt side. So we literally... Uh, raised private debt. I think I think five hundred thousand of it was debt, six hundred thousand of it was equity, um, and those people got different terms. The people who had the debt, I think I think the debt people got nine percent return. I mean, like that's pretty. You know, today like that's really expensive, um, but I think they got nine percent, uh, and they got obviously a preferred return because they were the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is in the eighties when a CD is paying you twenty one percent. So you're paying nine percent. I'm going to pay you less than you're going to yeah. get on a CD. But but come on in, it'll be fun. Yeah, no, that's really it. I mean, at the end of the day, no one, no one was expecting to get rich on this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But you know what it did is it actually launched my career and it led led to a few of these people saying, yeah, let's invest in with you in the next one. Um, yeah. And some some of them just kept you know coming along for the ride. Now what was clear, and this is what, what's very important relative to your question at the start, there are two pieces here. There's the real estate piece, and then there's the management company slash brand. Sure. So real estate piece um, was what I was raising money for. The management company I owned by myself. And um, in essence, each of these hotels would get a, a fee. I'm sorry, each of the, the Joie de Vivre is the management company, would get a fee to create the hotel and turn it around, manage the hotel, and market the hotel. So there was a fee structure coming in to the management company that was operating the business. So I would get a collection of investors to invest in the real estate. But in essence, what I was doing in the process of doing this was creating two investments. One is I was a partner with the people on the real estate side, and two is I was on my own on the management company side. And so what that meant is as the company grew, the man the value of the management company and, and the brand grew. And yeah, that's... So, so I'm sure it's not this cut and dry, but would you say in this first deal then that the management company got that extra 100000 Because that's what you used for operations and basically building the beginning of that? No, actually, no, the management company was basically, there was zero cost. It was me. So there was no, the only fee that that management company was, I mean. Did you even know to put in a line item for a developer's fee at that point? <laughs> no, not really. I, mean, I knew enough, though. I, that's the part where I was smart enough to know that kind of stuff because I'd been in real estate. Yeah. But, uh, but I had no idea how do you build a management company. Mm -hmm. And um, with just one property, the management company fees, you know, I was making $2,000 a month. That was my, you know, the net that I got out of all this was $24,000 a year, which I lived on for three and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, a classic entrepreneur, I was willing to, you know, two and a half years out of Stanford Business School, willing to work for very little money mm -hmm. because I was, I was building something. But what did you carve out on the equity side? So for the 600 k what did you give up? You know, I think I, gosh, it's hard. I've done 52 hotels. So yeah. It's hard to remember the details. That first, that first deal but is I usually the one that you remember. Yeah, the first one I think I, I got thirty percent uh, for putting zero money up, and mm -hmm. so that was it. And it didn't have much of an incentive uh, built into it. A lot of the deals I did later would have a twenty percent return, but then it actually could go up to fifty percent um, after some waterfall of how people got their, you know, their um, return on investment. So there'd be like a preferred return, and uh, once they get their X percent, mm -hmm. then it goes gets higher. I had so I, mean, I had. Because I was able to create boutique hotels affordably, I was really I, we were masters at taking old motor lodges and um, converting them into cool hip hipster hotels. Mm -hmm. And so there was one hotel, the Hotel Del Sol, which we did maybe after about uh, a, a, my first ten years. So um, that hotel, we bought it, we renovated it for nine hundred thousand dollars, and the net income in the first year after the renovation went up $1.1 million. So we basically paid for the whole renovation. That's crazy. In increased net income in the first year. Did so you, we had a lot of examples like that. And, and did you structure each deal? And I know we're getting kind of real estate specific here rather than just sort of business in general, star CL exit. But as far as these deals were concerned, did each deal stand on its own two feet in terms of individual LLC, individual uh, ownership slash investment structure. I'm just trying to understand how you were thinking about it as you built the 52 hotels. Were there, were there different partners in each group, or how did that end up playing yeah. out? 
So for the ownership of the hotels, each was a separate deal, unless in certain cases, and there were only a couple times this happened, we were buying two hotels together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so so what you just asked is a very important question and rat was rather um, daunting in the bad times. In the good times, it was fine. and But in the bad times, I had, you know, a collection of ownership groups that were were quite diverse and some of them some people were across all of them some people were just in one hotel but and so they wanted us to make sure that we were operating that hotel as if it was our most important but yeah when you had 52 hotels at the same time yeah going going into the dot-com bust or the or the great recession um it was it was it was daunting to have that many uh, people that many stakeholders that we were sort of accountable to yeah for sure and so did you ever have to go back in any of these cases to the groups for more cash after uh, some of the recession stuff uh, hit, or yeah, it just wasn't, yeah. or it just wasn't running in the way that you you know you modeled it? You obviously you're trying to model it out in a certain way, and it just didn't meet those those numbers. Did you did you find yourself often having to go back to the groups to raise more money? I'm just take us through a a couple yeah, of examples of what happened when things didn't exactly go to plan. Yeah, so. Um... One of my books that I've written called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, sort of takes people through that story. Um, the dot-com – so I was we were the largest hotelier. Uh, I went from the, the one hotel to by 15 years later in, in the year 2001, we were the largest hotelier in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, in terms of how many hotels we operated. We operated at that point 21 hotels um, only in the Bay Area. And during the dot-com boom, it was a great thing to be yeah, a Bay right. Area hotelier. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it like you know, it's like the spigot went dry, and it went dry for about four years, and it was a very difficult period. And I had to do 22 different capital calls during that four-year period um, in order to make sure that we had enough money to um, you know pay our property taxes or pay our payroll or. Um, you know, make sure we can, you know, buy more sheets or, or you know, sure. make sure we have, you know, pay pay the bartenders in the, in the bar. And so it was, um, that was hard. Uh, I ultimately created a t-shirt. It was a funny thing. So at some point when things are that bad, um, and we were, we were at really in the most risky position of any hotelier in the Bay Area, because all of our hotels were <clears throat> exclusively in the Bay Area. What I decided to do is to just take, you know, create some levity, some laughter out of this. So I, we created a T-shirt for all 200 of our investors, and the T-shirt was a funny little, almost like a little, like a cartoon advertising guy, um, with a bubble above his head of what he was saying, and the bubble said, um, uh, "I, I, I bought a hotel in San Francisco, and all I got was this T-shirt." <laughs> um, and, and the T-shirt was the funny guy that – and then on the backside, there was actually a graph that showed the – in quite graphic detail how much the revenue in the hotel market had actually fallen off in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and, and actually, it was really a, a clever and way of cementing our relationships with these uh, – uh, these owners, these these investors, mm-hmm. because they sort of said, you know, "Listen, you know, you're, you've been delivering a lot of bad news, but it was nice to see that you still have your sense of humor and you're still clever." Um, and you know, it, I think it helped us a lot. At the end of the day, we ended up uh, growing uh, market share, tripling our market share during that dot com bust. So we mm-hmm. actually grew substantially during that period. But yes, our revenues were still shrinking. So the fact that we were growing market share just meant that our 
competitors were doing worse than us. Mm -hmm. So you were able to pick up some other opportunities there for, uh, I don't know. I was going to say, you're never going to pick them up in San Francisco for pennies on the dollar, but at least a couple of quarters on the dollar. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then we started expanding into Southern California and and other markets, knowing that, you know, to having all of our eggs in one basket didn't make sense. Mm Mm-hmm. So your your vision going into this, did, did you ever see past the, when you first went into this, did you have the vision of multiple facilities or was it just let me get my my hands on one of these buildings, let me see what I can do? And it wasn't until after you were able to to really just get this thing stabilized and maybe refinance and you took some cash out or something of that nature that you then said, geez, this, this could actually scale. I'll be blunt and honest. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 for the sake of the investors, I had put together a, a, a um, plan for how we would uh, potentially get their, their money back plus a return. And, of course, it all made sense. But I had never actually sort of thought through, like if, if you have a 40-year lease and this is a seven-year investment, Seven years from now, uh, yeah. this, the land lease that is, is going to be only 33 years long. And so maybe the value of the property could go down because there's less time. It's, it's unlike you know fee simple real sure. estate. So long story short is I, I mean, I sort of knew that, but I hadn't really gone out and tried to figure out, well, how will we finance this? Well, it turns out the only way we could finance it seven years later to get some of the investors out of the deal was we still couldn't finance it, even though the numbers were doing well. We couldn't finance it with an institutional lender, so we had to do another private deal where we actually did it all equity. We we got rid of our internal debt, and we just said, let's just be all equity. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can't say that I was was not – on that side nor on the management company side, was I particularly focused on the idea of ever selling anything. Um, In some cases, and with some owners, some investors, they wanted to hold it forever. And so the way we would actually get people in their money back was refinancing. So, sure. you know, we we do well with our numbers, and then frankly, people can get all their money back, and then in essence, own the property without having any investment. No, no, all their they've got net, net, net. They've got all their money out, and they still get a great return every every year. So that was sort of how we were, you know, operating. And for the management company, gosh, if I'd been smart, I would have just said, okay, I'm I'm actually creating this value of a management company, and I would. Um, over time, at the peak of the market, I would say this is the, the right time for me to sell because there's a lot of people who are going to want a management company and brand, especially as boutique hotels started to get um, more and more popular. But instead, what I did is I, I I got into the Great Recession, which was the second downturn. You know, we had two once in a lifetime downturns in the same decade in the Bay Area: the the dot com bust and then the Great Recession. And it was during that recession that I started to say, you know what? I've been doing this a long time. It was at that point, it was about 24 years that I ran and was CEO of the company I started. And we were the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S. in terms of the number of hotels we operated. But I didn't want to do it anymore. And it was a terrible time to uh, to try to sell the company. We, had, we were launching 15 hotels in 21 months during the recession. Um so I, I mean, I ultimately, because it was a you know a company that was generating two hundred two hundred fifty million dollars a year in revenue, uh, it, we were still in a, we were in a position where it was um, 
you know, it's still worth selling. And but I, if I'd waited, um, I can't tell you for private privacy reasons what I sold it for. I sold it for definitely for a good bit more than um, than eight figures, but not a lot more. And the company now is part of um, there are three or four other companies attached to it. It's now just sold to Hyatt a week ago for. Six hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. if, if you include the the contingency fees. So, my piece, the Joie de Vivre piece, which I sold for, you know, uh, whatever I sold for, uh, let's call it between uh, ten and thirty million dollars, somewhere in there, because it's, it really was actually somewhere in there because of the fact that I um, I got I did for the first couple of years get some incentives. So it was, it was really it was probably let's say in the twenty million dollar range. Ultimately, my piece of that uh, eight years later was worth about sixty to eighty million dollars. So I could look back and say, "Shoot, that was really stupid." On the other hand, I kept all the real estate, so I never sold any of the real estate um, when I sold to John Pritzker, whose father started Hyatt, who's yeah. who bought the company. And what what I start, what I did from two thousand ten, which is when I sold Joie till the present, uh, there were twenty hotels that I owned at that point. I've sold eleven of them made <laughs> far more than I ever could have made. I mean, like, you know, a lot, a lot of money mm-hmm. on, on the real estate. Some of those hotels selling for nine figures or more. And I was, a, you know, usually anywhere from a 1% to a 35% partner in each of those deals. Um, but ultimately what's so interesting is, yes, the management company I did fine with, but not I could have done a lot better. The real estate I did really well with, and I still own nine hotels at this point. But the thing that actually I've done the best on is I created space in my life to see what would happen next. I wasn't sure what would happen next. And then five and a half years ago, six, almost six years ago, the Airbnb founders with their tiny little startup came to me and said, you know, you understand the hotel industry, hospitality business really well. We're just, we're, we're strong at technology and design. We don't understand this business. Can you help us, you know, run and grow this company and, I've done very, very, very well from uh, the the stock that I've received over the course of the almost last six years. Yeah, yeah, and um, and and definitely want to leave some time here to get into the Airbnb uh, discussion because I know that the audience is going to be very interested in some of the details around that. But I just want to take a quick step back because the business that you started and you mm-hmm. scaled and you exited from and actually still have some holdings in. In terms of your your own uh, the hotel uh, business that you started, what as you look to scale the business, what what did you find that you like? You know, you get one hotel, it's it's obviously just well, that's one hotel, right? But as you start mm-hmm. getting to two hotels and five hotels and, and ten and so on and so forth, what did you have to do to scale? that business like i mean because that's a completely different ball game at that point so i'm just trying to understand because a lot of folks you know maybe you you grow a a million dollar business but to get to 10 million dollars it just takes a a whole other skill set so in 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 relation to the hotel industry and going from one property to 5 10 20 etc what were did you was there a major hire that you made did you have to bring someone on board to to really help you scale, and, and I'm just really trying to understand, like what what do you think helped you to make that leap from just being a, a one hotel owner to actually yeah. building this uh, this very real formidable entity? 
Well, there's no doubt I had to build a, a team, um, a beautiful, really smart and um, effective team. Uh, and, and that's what I started doing once I got to my second hotel. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, had some, I had people who were the hotel experts, people who were the sales and marketing experts, the accounting experts. Um, and, you know, in each case, I, I sort of built a, a group of people who were often a lot smarter than I was in their particular area of specialty and then built a culture where they worked well together. And so um, probably the the most high profile hire I made was a guy named Jack Kenny, who had been president of Hotel Group of America. He was 16 years older than me. um, And I brought him in to be COO of my company and ultimately president. And um, he stayed with me for about 10 years. uh, And he helped run day-to-day operations. And um, that was, you know, really valuable. It it allowed me, while I was still actively involved in the culture of the company, it did allow me to really spend a lot of my time more externally focused because he was really running the internal operation. Yeah, and Chip, since these were all structured differently with different deals for each of the hotels, and this is early on, you said basically in the second hotel you started to bring these people together, what was it? that they bought into? Because obviously you didn't have a lot of money yet. Um, You're talking about the key hires? Were yeah. The key the, hires the key, buy into? What were, they, were they buying into? You were giving them some sort of equity in the management company? Where like How how were they, when you didn't have they, the capital, how were they being compensated? In, they were being compensated. So t- two key things. Number one is they were getting compensated in the real estate side of things. Because the real estate side was the side that actually was had a finite nature to it usually. We were going to buy something. We had partners, and there was a process of potentially selling, and and then uh, getting having my team have a small piece of that, and each one of them would sort of benefit from that. The problem with actually making them partners in the management company in the early days is that didn't have that was not finite. It wasn't clear that I, that I would ever sell that. Um, plus, I really frankly didn't as much as I had so many different people I needed to relate with on the. Um, real estate side, I really wanted to have singularity of focus of who owned the management company. Mm-hmm. Late in the game, um, about three years before I ultimately did sell the management company and brand in 2010, I did bring in three of my three top people and made them each 5% owners of the management company and brand. Um, and that management company also owned a couple pieces of real estate. So they got some real estate benefit out of that too. So why did people come join me if it was just for the real estate? Well, Joanne built a reputation and a culture that uh, was pretty famous, actually. I mean, we won the award to be the, se- the second best place to work in all the San Francisco Bay Area. Google was first. And I can tell you that Google has a much larger budget for employee perks than we do mm-hmm. uh, as a hotel company. So I think people liked our company. They just know that, they, that there was a sense that people felt good about the, um, about the nature of uh, what we were doing as an organization, and they wanted to be part of it. Yeah. Totally, totally get all that, and uh, appreciate you sharing some of the insight around that. And uh, still have nine of them, huh? <laughs> so that's... Still, still own nine. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and so to that end, have you, have you bought out all of the other partners and you're 100% owner of, uh, of those uh, hotels at this point, or no, no, no it's still the same ownership still, groups. Still, still. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and generally four of the nine are owned by one particular guy who 
just doesn't like selling. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I may own those with him for another 30 years, um, for all I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the idea, what was interesting, while it was, it wasn't really very well thought through for a guy who went to Stanford business school, I can't say that I had the most mastermind, uh, approach here, but the fact that ultimately I've had three ways, three different pools to build wealth has been helpful, all in the same industry. So it was all hospitality. One piece of it was the management company and brand, which I mostly owned by myself most of the time. One piece was real estate in terms of owning real estate, which had more finite ownership. Um, and then ultimately Airbnb, which is stock. Um, so it's very different things. You know, real estate ownership is different than <clears throat> ownership in a management company and brand, yeah. which is very different than ownership in Airbnb, which is frankly more of a tech company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, gosh, without even trying to, I had sort of a diversity of portfolio um, that has made me so made, made it such that I can live very comfortably uh, in yeah. my mid fifties. Yeah. It's uh, some good problems to have there. So uh, let me let me just take a step back in terms of capital raise, and, and this uh, this will uh, apply to Airbnb as well. We can get into that conversation now too. But uh, in terms of capital raise from your, uh, let's go way back. I mean, as you get success under your belt, it's much easier to to raise money. But in terms of the first raise, and then we, we can get into the Airbnb raise and so on. I just want to understand, did you go to friends and family and just paint a picture for them and say, hey, buy into this vision? Was that the thinking uh, out of the gate or did you, how did you raise that first 1.1? That was all, that was all friends and family? It was all friends and family. It was not, no one outside that. Um, And I can't say any, there was zero, no one ever invested because they believed in the real estate deal. Um, the second one now, <clears throat> the second and third hotels. Well, the second actually, second hotel we we owned as well, and it was a really cheap buy, but it was actually also in the same neighborhood, so not a great neighborhood. Um, it also had some really some hair hair on it as well. It was neither one of those deals were very great deals. Yeah, <clears throat> that that deal, that second deal. I mean, the Phoenix. I still thirty two years later, I still own it, but the second deal. Um, Owned it for about eight years, ten years maybe, and just realized at some point, you know, what? not much upside here, not great for the brand, um, and I needed to get rid of it. The third hotel was a management contract, so we didn't own it. it was, and um, it wasn't really till our fourth hotel that we started to really both aspire to more higher end properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, it was a small hotel on Knob Hill that was a luxury property, uh, and um, the upside on, on those hotels from that point forward were good. So I, you know, I guess that one lesson here is that it was I would I I did my fourth deal um, seven years into it, and of and and I and the deals I did from fourth deal to the say the thirteenth deal. Oh my God, some of those were ro- just roaring deals because many of those deals I did um, after in the there was a recession in the early nineties. There was an earthquake in nineteen eighty nine. Recession in the early nineties. So it was a bit of a downturn, and a lot of my investments in hotels during that time had no idea that a dot-com boom was coming. Yeah, and so I, I made some great, great investments at that time, and 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 that's where, frankly, a lot of the wealth got created um, during between about 1993 and about 2001. Yeah, and it also speaks to the power of opportunity and timing, right? I mean, obviously, in real mm-hmm. estate, you well, well, hell, with anything you buy low, you sell high, but you you 
clearly had some vision around what was possible, uh, which if you probably didn't have those successes, you probably would never have been tapped by Airbnb to, to come in and uh, and help guide and help guide them. So a lot of it is just really understanding where the opportunity lies, of course. Uh, a lot of it is, is timing and a lot of it is, is sheer luck. But at the same token, like you said, it wasn't until the seventh deal. And then from that period forward, you had some some really just, I guess, what you might call grand slams uh, of getting in at the right price and, and being able to uh, just kind of ride things out. And then once you're able to ride things out, it was just uh, sky's kind of the limit around that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think a key, one key lesson here, which is, I think, very, very true of real estate developers and some real estate owners is that, you know, you have you have to be able to handle the, the, the downturns. And, um, you know, some businesses, hotels being one of them, are extremely um, cyclical. And uh, this hotel business has ups and downs, but the ups and downs are, are quite severe. And the reason that relative to other kinds of real estate is because you're, you're, you're invest, you know, your, your night, your rate changes nightly. So, sure. um, if you're, you know, if you're signing a long-term lease, if you go into a recession, you've got that bankable, <clears throat> assuming your tenant doesn't go out of business, you have that bankable flow, flow of income mm-hmm. that changes in the hotel business and the hotel business has very high operating costs. So, um, not only does it have this variability, but it also has, you know, relatively high break-even point. Sure. So, so and in some cases, uh, major union labor issues, especially in a market like San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, as such, you have the, the net income for a particular hotel could wildly gyrate over the course of three or four years. It could it could be five times larger three or four years from now than it was, you know. Uh, now, yeah. uh, and that that that's where the opportunity is uh, as well. That's part of the reason why, you know, the cap rates, capitalization rates for yeah. hotels are high because the risk is high. Well, it's interesting too because as you sit there in the middle of this industry, when you see your numbers start to tank, you know they're tanking across the board. So you have the opportunity to say, look, we're going to be able to ride this out with with our properties. There are people out there who are experiencing the same thing, experiencing the same thing that can't ride it out. So mm-hmm. being entrenched in the industry, I'm sure it gave you a unique perspective to say, we're getting hammered here and we're going to ride this out. But if we're getting hammered here, then we know that some of these other opportunities, you know, these other uh, hoteliers, they're, they're not going to be able to ride it out. So I'm sure just being entrenched in the space gave you insight that others kind of had to follow the market trends to figure out what was going on. You got in on that really early because you could see, the, obviously, what was going on from a trend perspective. Yes. Yeah. No. I think, and and the specialty. Well, well, there was a lot of risk of being <clears throat> having all my eggs in one basket in the Bay Area. It actually turned out very well because it meant we understood how to unlock potential in a da- in a downturn mm-hmm. because we understood the market really, really well, and we could, you know, we knew where to get business um, during a really rough period, uh, and it also allowed us to be very. Um, Opportunistic, sure. when properties were had were coming on the market uh, at way below what they should have come on the market because their net income had dropped off, and so we could scoop up and buy some hotels quite cheaply. Yeah, if you're buying on cap rates and and occupancy goes from ninety percent to seventy percent, that that same cap rate looks pretty good from an NOI perspective, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah the, so the opportunity exists. There. So I, I know so many folks are wanting to hear more about the Airbnb side of the equation. So let's. 
Let's jump over to that. Now, sure. how many employees were at Airbnb when you were tapped to, to help? And, and, and again, folks, listen to the episode with Chip where we sat down on Reinvention Radio, uh, and we do go into some of the details of being a modern elder and those sort of things and tapping into some of the wisdom from Chip's uh, book there, which uh, we'll, we'll get to some of those names here in a second. So definitely check out that, uh, that episode of Reinvention Radio with Chip. But uh, let's just get into more of the nuts and bolts around Airbnb from a business perspective. How many employees sure. uh, yes. were there? How long, how deep into it? How much had they raised at that point before they tapped you, Chip? They were, you know, here's the part that's interesting because, so Airbnb was started 10 years ago in 2008. Um, its first two years were really a struggle. 2008, 2009 didn't do well. 2010 started showing a little bit of improvement. 2011 is when it kicked in. I came in in early 2013. Okay. So by the time I got there, I mean, this is amazing. Between 2010 and 2013, the value of the business had had jumped from a couple hundred million, which a couple, a couple hundred million is, you know, a, a great business. Valuation of a couple hundred million uh, in about 2010, 2011 to 2.2 billion um, in 2013 when I joined. Actually, it was 2000, late 2012 mm-hmm. um, that, that that valuation happened. So I joined at a the time there were 300 employees, valuation of 2.2 billion. So that sounds like it was a big business, but it really wasn't. Um, we were doing between 1% and 2% of the business we're doing today. So it was wow. very much built yeah. on um, future projections. Today we have over, we have 5,200 employees. Um, and the valuation is, you know, somewhere between, you know, I, I have to be careful here. It, it's very public in terms of what's been said. The valuation was as of almost two years ago. With it's somewhere between Apple and Uber. Million. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's actually between Uber and something else. But yeah, no, yeah. it's actually it's, it's less than Uber. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's probably between forty and fifty billion could be the the range that it would be in. Yeah. So I was at, I came in at around two point two, and now and five and a half years later, it's at in that in that range. And at at its peak, Joie de Ville, the 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 valuation at its peak for for that hotelier, what was do you do you remember what the what the highest valuation was? At, uh, you mean at for peak? the management company or brand? It's so hard to do, right? Because you got the different yeah, pieces of it. Was, um, it wasn't. I mean, I, we were a $250 million a year company in terms yeah. of annual revenues. So, you know, it's, it's impossible. There's, yeah. there's, I never I never had – so it's, it was substantially smaller. I mean, never was Joie de Vivre as the management company brand worth uh, – you know, ultimately with the Hyatt sale, it was probably worth 60 to $80 million, mm-hmm. uh, just for the management company and brand. So it's substantially less than yeah. what was uh, – what Airbnb is worth because it's – the difference between a bricks and mortar business and a and a tech company substantially. So, okay, I know you didn't go into Airbnb until the 2013. I think you were saying there, but yeah. and then 2008, 2009, they're having a tough time. They start to kick in. How much of that was it? Was it a change in something they did, or was it just the the culture was finally starting to? travel again right because the great recession people had no money and like how, how much i know you don't know for sure because you weren't there yet oh no i know i I've, I've got a great sense of it just because i i came in and did my homework before i arrived to sort of see how what was going on um the thing that really what thing that's interesting is uh there's in the tech world there's something called a network effect this uh network network, network effect so mm-hmm. network effect is think of facebook when or actually let's take bricks and mortar a network effect would be a farmer's market. 
And the farmer's market that actually has the best farmers and also has the, the greatest volume of people arriving um, will likely get more people over time because that marketplace of buyers and sellers is what people are looking for. eBay was the same. Facebook is the same when it comes to social media. And Airbnb, when it comes to home sharing globally in 192 countries, was the same. So there was a the, the fact is we were doing well in certain countries in, say, 2010, 2011, but not globally. Mm-hmm. And it was really during the time that I joined that we actually took it and made it global and then became what's called a global network effect business. Uber is a local network effect business. You know, I, I use both Uber and Lyft. But when I'm traveling in certain cities, I'm not going to use Lyft because, even though I like it more, because it doesn't have enough of a network effect. There's not enough people using it and drivers for it to have the efficiency of the marketplace. Um, so what Airbnb has masterfully been able to do is to create a global network effect business that becomes the marketplace for people saying, it's where I'm going to find my place I'm going to stay. And it's where people host then say, it's where I'm going to actually put my listing up there because it's where I'm going to find my, yeah. my uh, renter. I, I, how do they do that though? From a car, it's like a cart and a horse type scenario. Yes. I mean, there's so many folks here who want to develop something similar, not, you know, no one's going to, well, maybe somebody goes up against Airbnb right now, but somebody wants to do something similar where it's a cart and a horse, where you need enough product in order to attract enough consumers. And of course, if you have too much product and not enough consumers, then it doesn't work and nobody nobody likes that either. So how, how did Airbnb balance the cart and the horse question of enough product and enough consumers? Yeah, and do it globally. I mean, it's it's a hard enough thing to do if you're just doing it in the local thing. Well, we, we had 22 offices. We basically, during the time I joined, we went from about six to eight offices to 22 offices almost overnight. So that's really hard to, to scale and, and you know across all, all markets, you know, major markets in the world. Um, so we had to make an investment in those markets and, and then have people out there doing virtually daily events that helped to, um, if, you had, if we had hosts in, let's say, um, I don't know. Let's yeah, Chicago. So was it real estate first and consumers second or consumers first and real estate second in terms of, uh, in terms of in the, places in the to er- stay? In the early days, it had to be real estate first. So because, you had enough, you know, enough places to stay to then say to the consumers, hey, go check this out in San Francisco. You get somebody on the ground in San Francisco. You've got 100 listings there. You start. So, okay. So you go to the real estate so, so, first so and the, the marketing to, second. Yeah. So the best way to, to think of it, and I, I'll give you up to the present day as well, is we needed the real estate first, but then you needed to have, give those people some guarantee that they were going to be getting, not guarantee in terms of a, a contractual guarantee, but some sense that there was enough liquidity in the marketplace that they were going to get, make money doing it. So we had to, we got really smart at using a variety of traditional sort of SEO and other uh, digital marketing strategies to help drive demand to those markets where we were actually getting a lot of supply. Um, so we were directing traffic a little bit. Um, and so, uh, what's happened over time is that over time we have dramatically more demand than we, than we have supply. Mm. That's been our, that's really our current challenge is that both through regulation, because regulation in many cities has gotten very much more restrictive about, um, home sharing, um, that has led to less supply in certain markets. But it, what's clear is that the consumer absolutely demands and, des- and desires this kind of experience. 
Why? Because they want more space for less money uh, and they appreciate the kind of connection they might make with a local. I mean, those are the two predominant reasons why people use Airbnb. Um, they're about equal in terms of why, why people choose one or the other. Um, so our challenge today is actually quite the opposite. So we have, we have too much demand and we have to figure out how to, how to satisfy that demand with, with supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally makes sense. Richie, I think you have some. Yeah. A couple questions. Um, well, first it's, Kind of funny as I'm sitting here listening, how much knowledge you actually had early on in this from the early friends couch surfing on your place <laughs> before yeah. you opened the Joie de Vivre, right? Funny, huh? But, um, you know, I, every time, especially even back into uh, Reinvention Radio, every time I keep hearing you talk, like, yes, you have your big business acronyms and you know business, but there's this culture element that just keeps coming through through you and the understanding of people and where things are at. And so I kind of want to ask this question in a way that kind of addresses that from a story and a branding perspective of this cart and horse thing that Steve was talking about in a minute, because taxis were already there before Uber and VRBO was already there before. So it's not like it's just a new story and a new branding. And, And so how much of it do you think comes to that? Because sometimes, you know, just this, you know, I'll just give it to you on that. I'll give you I'll start with that question. Sure. I, the, the thing, you're absolutely right. I've, I've said this on stage, given lots of speeches about the fact that Craigslist and VRBO both <clears throat> were creating an environment where people could rent space to a stranger. In the case of Craigslist, it was to find a roommate. In the case of VRBO, it was to rent your second home. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so all Airbnb does, Airbnb, Airbnb did maybe three things. Um, that, that differentiated that. Number one is they took that VRBO idea and took it to people's primary homes in urban markets. So VRBO was in, you know, where, wherever, uh, you, you know, the vacation rental place. Um, but actually Airbnb said, hey, your primary home, if you've got an extra bedroom, or uh, quite often for Europeans, they get six or eight weeks of vacation a year, but they can't afford it. So they actually paid for their vacation <clears throat> by renting out their um, their home mm-hmm. uh, while while they were traveling, um, so so the fact it was it was it was to um, a a different market um, was the first thing, and the second thing is that frankly VRBO and Craigslist was did not have a great UX user experience. Yeah, um, VRBO was literally just an advertising site. You know, the host just paid an, an annual fee, and they they just you know they that and they and that and there was no payments plan. So if you had to pay, you know, to, for the rental you're doing, you'd be paying, um, you know, writing a check and putting it in the mail to sure. some person you don't know. So there was that, and then there was the design piece of it as well. Um, you know, the the UX of the, the design of the Airbnb site was so much better than VRBO or, or Craigslist. And then thirdly, it became sort of a cultural phenomenon, uh, especially a, a millennial one, which was the idea of living like a local and. Um, you know, our average length of stay for an Airbnb guest is twice as long as a hotel. So there was a growing segment of people in the population who are sort of digital nomads. Um, in fact, some of these who, some of these people who are millennials don't have the primary home. Mm-hmm. They don't have a home they own. They don't even have an apartment. They actually just sort of like go around the world just enjoying themselves and working while they're on the road because they can actually work digitally from afar. And... Um, all those things led to Airbnb becoming uh, not just—I mean, became Airbnb became a bit of a cultural phenomenon. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and and even created a verb. Let's go. Air, let's Airbnb it. Yeah. It's just like let's Google it or let's Uber it. Uh, you know, Airbnb became a verb to mm-hmm. describe an action. Mm-hmm. And as much as we'd love to go so much deeper on this, and of course, Chip, we we could. Um, we're coming up on the uh, on the clock here. So let me just ask you one final question, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll get folks directed over to to your books, your website, and all the fun stuff that you're up to right now. Uh, but as much as you're willing to disclose here, it'd be great to get some insight around how you were able to actually structure that deal because you said there was a lot of stock upside there for you. So can, can you give us a sense of the deal you were able to structure with Airbnb? Yeah. I mean, well, frankly, the weird part is that initially I wasn't sure that it was a viable business. So I said, don't pay me any cash. Just give me stock options for the first six months and let's do this for six months and see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Because I, w- I had also been CEO of my own company, and I was coming in as Brian's mentor, but I was also going to be reporting to him. Um, but quickly, I could see it was a successful business, and so I shifted it. So, I, I, you know, start paying me some cash, and then let's do four years of vesting. Um, and so, uh, my vet, you know, my stock, I got a lot of vested stock, and uh, the structure of that was such that it was. Um, you know, when you have a when you have a, you have a strike price, so to speak. I won't mm-hmm. get into that. We have a strike yep. price, which is low, and and then um, if the value goes up over time, you can pay as an option to the strike price. And let's say the strike price is three, and now the value of the stock is thirty-seven. So it's gone from three to thirty-seven. So the profit you make is in between between thirty-seven and three. Now there's tax implications on all of this. Um, but that is the kind of deal I had with, you know, with hundreds of thousands of, sh- of shares, shares of stock. Um, nice. And yeah, so it's just, you know, I, frankly, gosh, almost a million shares of stock. So it was a lot of stock. And over time, now I actually ended up leaving, or I ended up going to a part-time status earlier than I w- was expecting to, because I just started, I started feeling like, oh, I can't keep this up. So I, I gave, I gave some of my stock back. <laughs> and moved in, moved into moved into a more of a consulting role because frankly at that point I said like you know what I want my life back right and if if this company is as successful as it seems that it's going to be yeah. the difference between that and that is like you know it doesn't matter yeah. but the difference of time of having time back in my life was mattered a lot I got you all right let's do this folks check out Chip Conley at chipconley.com really enjoyed having you on Chip for Richie Ote I'm Steve Olsher we'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures take care everybody